0: Everybody out there in podcast land, it says Chris, the public safety guru, a.k.a. the EMT tutor, bringing you this exciting announcement. I have revamped memberships and you can now access exclusive content, which includes quizzes, practice tests, block exams, practice final exams, study guides and other resources for the low cost of $4.99 a month. And when you're done with your EMT program or taking the National Registry exam, you can cancel. Now, you can join from your favorite podcast app, but it's best if you do it from Spotify or our Patreon channel. If you join from your podcast app, all you need to do is send me an email to Guru at gmail.com letting me know that you signed up. But if you do it from Patreon, I get instant notification which grants you instant access to our Google Drive which has all of these resources including the ad-free version of this podcast. But wait, here is the most exciting part. When you subscribe, you get access to our all new Discord channel which allows you to have interaction with me where you can ask me specific questions as it relates to your EMT program or prepping for the National Registry exam. But let's just say you just have that question where you're not understanding something. Well, we can answer that question through Discord, and that's what I'm really excited about. And last, you can interact with this EMT community and help each other. All right, don't forget to follow us on Instagram, at the EMT Tutor, and I almost forgot, if you're looking for us at Patreon, search for the EMT tutor. All right, let's get on with your learning. Today, While we're gonna be talking about specifically respiratory emergencies. This is lecture two of your medical block, and after this lecture and podcast, and subsequently your coursework, you, the EMT student, should understand the significance and characteristics of respiratory emergencies in infants, children, and the adult population. Students should be able to demonstrate a fundamental comprehension on the following topics, respiratory anatomy and physiology, pathophysiology, signs and symptoms of various respiratory emergencies such as asthma, COPD, and pneumonia, and the assessment and management necessary to provide basic care in the pre-hospital setting. Don't forget, ladies and gentlemen, to follow us on Instagram at The EMT Tutor, or head on over to our webpage, thepublicsafetyguru.com, for up-to-date information about everything EMT. We also have exclusive content for those that become podcast members or join our Patreon channel, which can be found by searching for The EMT Tutor. There, you will find exclusive members-only podcasts, study guides, and tests. All right. On to your learning as with all of our lectures, we're going to talk about the knowledge domains that you the EMT student, should know by the end of this particular lecture series. So the first one, you should be able to list the structures and functions of the upper and lower airways, lungs, and the accessory structures associated with the respiratory system. You should be able to explain the physiology of respiration, including the signs of normal breathing. I'm a big fan of this. I always tell my students that you should continue to practice on your fellow students because if you know what normal looks like, abnormal will always stick out. The EMT student should be able to discuss the pathophysiology of respiration, including examples of the common signs and symptoms a patient with inadequate breathing may present during an emergency situation. The EMT should be able to explain the special patient assessment and care considerations that are required for geriatric patients who are experiencing respiratory distress. The EMT should be able to describe the different respiratory conditions that cause dyspnea, including their cause, assessment findings and symptoms, complications, and specific pre-hospital management and transport decisions. The EMT should be able to list the characteristics of infectious diseases that are frequently associated with dyspnea. Unfortunately, today we now have to take pandemics and epidemics into consideration. So the EMT should be able to take in pandemic considerations as it relates to special diseases, such as influenza type A, and the strategy the EMT should employ to protect themselves from infection during a possible crisis situation. The EMT should be able to explain the special patient assessment and care consideration that is required for pediatric patients who are experiencing respiratory distress. The EMT should describe the assessment of a patient who is in respiratory distress and the relationship of the assessment findings to patient management and transport decisions. The EMT should describe the primary emergency medical care of a person who is in respiratory distress. The EMT should be able to list the five different types of advantageous breath sounds, their signs and symptoms, and the disease process associated with each one. Last, the EMT should be able to state the generic name, medication forms, dose, administration indications, actions, and contraindications for medications that are administered via metered dose inhalers and small volume nebulizers. Alright, if that sounds like a lot of stuff, well, it is, however, After you get done listening to this podcast, we should have simplified all of those knowledge domains. And don't forget, these are lectures that are built upon other lectures. So if you're wondering about the pharmacology later on down the line, well, just go to the pharmacology lecture and listen to those specific medications that are associated with respiratory emergencies. That's how this series has been built. All right, so now let's jump into your learning and get you to be able to wrap your head around all of those knowledge domains. Based upon my experience, shortness of breath, difficulty breathing, AKA dyspnea is one of the most significant calls that you will go on. As a matter of fact, it will probably be up there on the top three types of calls that the EMT will respond on. Unfortunately, Sometimes trying to determine what is causing the patient's dysthmia can be difficult. But regardless of this difficult diagnosis, you still be able to save a patient's life utilizing the proper treatment based upon the signs and symptoms that the patient presents with. Okay, so before we jump into that treatment that can save someone's life, we should do a little bit of refresher on the respiratory system because most likely, when you had your anatomy and physiology of the respiratory system, it was at the beginning of your program. So let's talk about the anatomy of the respiratory system. The respiratory system consists of all structures that contribute to breathing. This includes the diaphragm, the chest wall muscles, the accessory muscles of breathing, nerves from the brain and spinal cord to those muscles. Now the upper airway consists of all anatomic structures above the vocal cords. Just remember that anything above the vocal cords is the upper airway. And those structures are nose and mouth, the jaw, the oral cavity, the pharynx and the larynx. Now the principal function of the lungs in respiration is the exchange of oxygen and carbon dioxide. That is the principal function. Air travels through the trachea into the lungs, then onto the bronchi, then the bronchioles, and eventually the alveoli. That is it, ladies and gentlemen. That is the anatomy of the respiratory system. So now let's talk about the physiology of the respiratory system. See how we're breaking this down? We're breaking, we concentrate on one topic, and then we move on to the next topic. So if you're having some basic understanding issues, you can listen to that particular chapter to help you to remember the information better. Physiology of respiration. There are two processes that occur during respiration and that is inspiration and expiration. Oxygen is provided to the blood and carbon dioxide is removed from it. In healthy lungs, this exchange of gases takes place rapidly at the level of the alveoli. Now, the alveoli lie against the pulmonary capillary vessels. Oxygen passes freely through tiny passages in the alveolar wall into these capillaries through the process of diffusion. Remember, diffusion is an area of higher concentration going to an area of lower concentration. It is carried to the heart and pumped throughout the blood. Carbon dioxide returns to the lungs and is exhaled out of the body. Now this is all done because the stem senses the level of carbon dioxide in the arterial blood. If the, level, if the level of carbon dioxide drops too low, the person automatically breathes at a slower rate and less deeply. If the level of carbon dioxide rises above normal, the person breathes more rapidly and more deeply. The proper exchange of oxygen and carbon dioxide can be hindered by multiple factors. There could be an abnormal or pathological condition in the anatomy of the airway, the disease process, a traumatic condition, and abnormalities in the pulmonary vessels. The EMT must be able to recognize the signs and symptoms of inadequate breathing and know what to do about it. In your program, your instructor should talk to you about carbon dioxide retention and hypoxic drive. I want to explain it a little more basically to help you wrap your head around this. See, all of us breathe based upon the carbon dioxide levels in our bloodstream, as I mentioned before. However, there are patients that will eventually become oxygen breathers. In other words, something has changed in the brain and those receptors are no longer working. Now, patients will sometimes have an elevated level of carbon dioxide in the arterial blood. And these are patients with a chronic lung, di- lung disease, such as COPD. If levels remain elevated for a period of years, the respiratory center in the brain will not function properly. The brain gradually accommodates high levels of carbon dioxide and then uses a backup system to control breathing based upon low levels of oxygen, known as a hypo- hypoxic drive. These are the patients that we must use caution on when administering oxygen. We're now going to talk about the causes of dyspnea. Remember, dyspnea can be caused by many different medical problems. An altered mental status may be a sign that the brain is hypoxic. Patients often have difficulty breathing and are hypoxia with the following conditions, pulmonary edema, hay fever, pleural effusion, obstruction of the airway, hyperventilation syndrome, environmental or industrial exposures, carbon monoxide poisoning, and last, drug overdose. There are a few conditions that possibly could exist with your dysmic patient. One of those conditions is when gas exchange is obstructed by fluid in the lung, infection, or collapsed alveoli. The alveoli are damaged and and cannot transport gases properly across their own walls. How do Abilai become damaged? Well, chronic smoking. Another situation is that the air passages are obstructed by a muscle spasm, mucus, or weakened floppy airway walls. Another condition could possibly be blood flow to the lungs is obstructed obstructed by blood clots. And last, the pleural space is filled with air or excess fluid so the lungs cannot properly expand. Now, a patient could present with one of these situations or have a combination of these situations. Dyspnea is a common complaint in patients with cardiopulmonary disease. Congestive heart failure causes the heart to pump inefficiently and deprives the body of oxygen. Severe pain can cause a patient to experience rapid, shallow breathing without the presence of a primary pulmonary dysfunction. As we continue to talk about the causes of dyspnea, we're now going to focus on infections of the upper and lower airway. Unfortunately, infectious diseases causing dyspnea may affect all parts of the airway. The one thing to remember here is that whatever the problem is causing the dyspnea, that problem is in the form of some type of obstruction. It could be mucus and secretion, obstructing airflow in major passages. You find this in patients that have a cold. Swelling of soft tissue in the upper airway. A cause of that could be epiglitis or croup. Or impaired exchange of gases in the alveoli, which can be associated with pneumonia. So you can see how these infectious diseases are causing that obstruction of the... Respiratory system, which is leading to the patient's dyspnea. The EMT should be diligent about the proper use of PPE when you're coming into contact with these patients because obviously you don't want to get sick. Alright, now we're going to start breaking down the specific upper and lower airway infections and we're going to first focus on croup. As I break down these specific infections, what I'm identifying is the information that you should walk away from for testing in your particular EMT program or in preparation for the National Registry test. Alright, now going back to croup. Croup is the inflammation and swelling of the pharynx, larynx, and trachea. It is typically seen in children between 6 months and 3 years of age. Moving on to epiglottitis. This is an inflammation of the epiglottis usually as a result of a bacterial infection. This is more predominant in children, but can also occur in adults. Children are often found in the tripod position and drooling. Treat them gently and try not to make them cry. Position comfortably, provide high flow O2, and do not put anything in their mouth. RSV is the next infection we're gonna talk about, and that is respiratory syncytial virus. This is a common illness in young children, It causes an infection in the lungs and breathing passages. You should look for signs of dehydration and treat airway and breathing problems appropriately. All right, let's talk now about bronchiolitis. This is a viral illness that occurs due to RSV and usually affects newborn and toddlers. Bronchioles become inflamed, swell, and fill with mucus. Provide O2 therapy and frequently reassess for signs of respiratory distress. Now I know you've heard about this infectious disease, and that's pneumonia. This is a general term that refers to an infection of the lungs. It's often a secondary infection that begins after an upper respiratory tract infection. Bacterial pneumonia will come on quickly and result in high fevers. Viral pneumonia presents more gradually and is less severe. Pneumonia especially affects people who are chronically and terminally ill. Assess temperature to to determine presence of fever. Provide airway support and supplemental oxygen. Our next disease is whooping cough, aka pertussis. This is a airborne bacterial infection that mostly affects children under the age of six. Patients will be feverish and exhibit a whoop sound after a coughing attack. It is highly contagious and is passed through droplet infection. Watch for signs of dehydration and you may have to suction your patient. Now this next infectious disease is influenza type A. This is an animal respiratory disease that is mutated to infect humans. Kind of scary, huh? In 2009, the H1N1 strain of influenza type became a pandemic. So believe it or not, COVID is not the first pandemic that we have seen. The outbreak was on a global scale. Symptoms include fever, cough, sore throat, muscle aches, headache, and fatigue. This particular influenza may lead to pneumonia and dehydration. Tuberculosis, aka TB, is a bacterial infection that most commonly affects the lungs, but it can also be found in almost any other organ of the body. TB can remain inactive for years before producing any symptoms. Patients often complain of fever, coughing, fatigue, night sweats, and weight loss. Prevalence is higher in the homeless population, prison inmates, Nursing home residents, and persons who abuse intravenous drugs or alcohol, and those with HIV. If you suspect your patient may have TB, you need to wear at a minimum your gloves, eye protection, and an N95 respirator. Let's talk about one of the ones, or I should say, one of the disease processes that's a little bit scary, and that's acute pulmonary edema. The left side of the heart cannot remove blood from the lung as fast as the right side delivers it fluid builds up within the alveoli and in the lung tissue this accumulation of fluid is referred to as pulmonary edemia this usually is a result of congestive heart failure and the patient usually experiences dyspnea with rapid shallow respirations in severe cases a frothy pink sputum forms at the nose and mouth. Most patients have a long-standing history of chronic congestive heart failure that can be kept under control with medications. With your patient that presents with acute pulmonary edemia, you should essentially think of that patient being underneath water, drowning in front of you. One last caveat to understand is that not all patients with pulmonary pulmonary edema have heart disease. We're going to be switching gears and moving on over to COPD. COPD is a slow process of dilation and disruption of the airways and alveoli caused by a chronic bronchial obstruction. This is an umbrella term used to describe a few lung diseases including emphysema and chronic bronchitis. Now in my experience I have found that chronic smokers have caused themselves to become COPD. Tobacco smoke is a bronchial irritant and can create chronic bronchitis and an ongoing irritation of the trachea and bronchi. With bronchitis, excessive mucus is constantly produced, obstructing the small airways and alveoli. Airways are weakened as the lungs protective devices are destroyed. Chronic oxygenation problems can also lead to right heart failure and fluid retention. Thus, pulmonary, or I should say pneumonia, develops more easily in these patients. And then there are repeated episodes of irritation and pneumonia causing scarring in the lungs and some dilation of the obstructed alveoli leading to COPD. So what's happening is that basically the disease process is destroying the lungs and those protective layers alveoli is shrinking and disappearing and the patient is unable to move oxygen effectively throughout the body and this condition is aka COPD now emphysema is the most common type of COPD Emphysema is the loss of elastic material around the air spaces as a result of chronic stretching of the alveoli. Smoking can directly destroy the elasticity of the lung tissue. Most patients with COPD have elements of both chronic bronchitis and emphysema. With a COPD patient, believe it or not, your patient could present with either wet lung sounds or dry lung sounds. So what is the difference? Well, patients with pulmonary edemia caused most often by congestive heart failure will often have wet lung sounds and that could be described as both ronchi and crackles and patients with COPD will often have dry lung sounds, wheezes. The wet lung sounds of pulmonary edemia and the dry lung sounds of COPD can sometimes be confusing. Do not assume that all COPD patients have wheezing and all congestive heart patients have rails. This is probably the biggest takeaway during your assessment process. All right, now we're gonna start talking a little bit about asthma, hay fever, and anaphylaxis. Asthma, hay fever, and anaphylaxis result from an allergic reaction to an inhaled, ingested, or injected substance. Asthma, this is an acute spasm of the bronchioles. It's associated with excessive mucus production and swelling of the mucus lining of the respiratory passages. It affects all ages, but it's more prevalent in children between the ages of 5 and 17. It produces a characteristic wheezing caused by partially obstructed airways. An acute allergic asthma attack may be caused by an allergic reaction to specific foods or some other allergen. Attacks may also be caused by severe emotional distress, exercise, and respiratory infections. In its most severe form, an allergic reaction can produce anaphylaxis. Hay fever, aka allergic rhinitis. Hay fever causes cold-like symptoms, including a runny nose, sneezing, congestion, and sinus pressure. Symptoms are caused by an allergic reaction usually to some outdoor airborne allergens. Alright, now let's just now focus a little bit about anaphylactic reactions. An anaphylactic reaction is a severe allergic reaction characterized by severe airway swelling and dilation of the blood vessels. Signs and symptoms may be very similar to asthma. The airway can swell so much that total obstruction is possible. Epinephrine is the treatment of choice, and oxygen and antihistamines are helpful. I want to now talk about the spontaneous pneumothorax. A pneumothorax is the partial or total accumulation of air in the pleural space. It is most often caused by trauma, but may be also caused by a medical condition, a.k.a. a spontaneous pneumothorax. A vacuum-like pressure in the pleural space keeps the lungs inflated. When the lung is disrupted, air escapes into the pleural cavity and the negative vacuum pressure is lost. A spontaneous pneumothorax occurs in patients with certain lung infections or in young people born with weak areas of the lung. A patient with a spontaneous pneumothorax becomes dysmic and may complain of pleuritic chest pain. Breath sounds are sometimes absent or decreased on the affected side right you probably heard me talk about pleural infusion when we first started this podcast so what is that a pleural infusion is a collection of fluid outside the lung it compresses the lung and causes dyspnea it can be caused by irritation infection congestive heart failure or cancer patients feel better if they're sitting upright let's now talk about the obstruction of the airway a patient with dyspnea may have a mechanical obstruction. In semi-conscious and unconscious patients, the obstruction may be the result of aspiration of vomitus or a foreign body, or improper positioning of the head causing the tongue to block the airway. If the patient was eating just before onset of the dyspnea, always consider the possibility of a foreign body obstruction. Pulmonary embolus An embolus is anything in the circulatory system that moves from its point of origin to a distant site and lodges there, obstructing blood flow. Circulation can be cut off completely or partially. Emboli can be fragments of blood clots that break off and travel through the bloodstream. They can also be foreign bodies, such as a bubble of air. A pulmonary embolus is a blood clot that circulates through the venous system and the right side of the heart and lodges in the pulmonary artery. Signs and symptoms of a pulmonary emboli include the following, dyspnea, tachycardia, tachypnea, varying degrees of hypoxia, cyanosis, acute chest pain, and hemopietis, spelled H-E-M-O-P-T-Y-S-I-S. And I do apologize for my pronunciation. With a large enough embolus, complete obstruction of the output of blood from the right side of the heart can result in sudden death. Don't get fooled by this next emergency, as some EMTs and paramedics do. Oftentimes, rescuers will identify hyperventilation to be a behavioral issue, yet. Hyperventilation is defined as overbreathing to the point that the level of arterial carbon dioxide falls below normal. This may be an indicator of a life threatening illness. The body may be trying to compensate for acidosis. Don't forget, acidosis is the buildup of excess acid in the blood or body tissues. This can result in alkalosis which is the buildup of excessive, base, or lack of acids in the body tissues. This can cause symptoms of hyperventilation syndrome, aka panic attack, including anxiety, dizziness, numbness, tingling of the hands and feet, painful spasms of the hands or feet, which is otherwise known as carpal-pedal spasms. The decision whether hyperventilation is being caused by a life threatening illness or a panic attack should not be made outside the hospital. In other words, treat the signs and symptoms, don't get caught or fooled, and treat your patient appropriately. Our last issue we're going to talk about are the environmental or industrial exposures. Pesticides, cleaning solutions, chemicals, chlorine, and other gases can be accidentally released at industrial sites and inhaled by employees. One of the most dangerous types of poisonings are carbon monoxide poisonings. Carbon monoxide is an orderless and highly poisonous gas. Carbon monoxide poisoning is a leading cause of accidental deaths in the United States. Carbon monoxide is produced by fuel-burning household appliances and is present in smoke. People who have carbon monoxide poisoning complain of flu-like symptoms and even dyspnea. Do not put yourself at risk when treating these patients. High flow oxygen by a non-rebreather mask is the best treatment for the conscious patient. We have now covered what may cause dyspnea. Now we're gonna work on the patient assessment. Now here's the thing. I don't really think your patient assessment changes all too much as long as you have certain steps down. But once again, yes, your patient assessment does change from patient to patient as well as from the type of call that you're on and it being medical or trauma or both. So let's talk about the important aspects of patient assessment as it deals with the dysmic patient. As with all lectures, we're going to start off with the way the patient assessment goes according to National Registry. All right, scene size up. Use your standard precautions and use the proper PPE that has been given to you by either your ambulance company or department. Consider the possibility of an infectious disease or toxic substance. If there are multiple people with dysmia, consider the possibility of an airborne hazardous material release. If the mechanism of injury or the nature of illness is in question, ask why 911 was activated. This should always be in the back of your mind. By questioning the patient, family, and or bystanders, you should be able to determine the NOI. As we move into the actual primary assessment, once again, identify those immediate life threats. Form an overall general impression of the patient's level of stress. note the age and position of the patient, use AVPU to scale for the check of responsiveness, and ask the patient about his or her chief complaint. As you assess the patient's ABCs, Make sure the airway is patent and adequate. Evaluate for adequate breathing, which means check for rate, rhythm, and quality, and then assess those breath sounds. Listen over a bare chest if possible. Determine whether breath sounds are normal, decreased, absent, or abnormal. Listen to breath sounds for a full respiratory cycle. Abnormal sounds including snoring, wheezing, crackles, ronchi, or strider may indicate or should indicate that the patient is having some type of respiratory emergency. When you assess circulation, assess, obviously, the pulse rate, rhythm, and quality, evaluate the patient for shock and any bleeding, and then assess perfusion by evaluating the skin color, temperature, and condition. Remember, if your patient is pale, cool, diaphoretic, you should be thinking shock. At this point in time, you should begin to make some transport decisions. Address the life threats and then proceed with rapid transport. Now, we're going to start moving into the history taking. Investigate the patient's chief complaint and determine what the patient has done for the breathing problem. With patients in respiratory distress, a sample history can be collected from bystanders or family if they are present. The OPQRST assessment can be used to assess for pain and can gather information about the breathing problem. The PASTE assessment is a specific alternative assessment for a complaint of shortness of breath or difficulty breathing. If you have not been introduced to PASTE, PASTE is P-A-S-T-E with P standing for progression, A for associative chest pain, S for sputum, T for talking tiredness, and E for exercise tolerant. Now we're going to move into the secondary assessment. The secondary assessment is a more in-depth assessment of body systems. Only proceed with the secondary assessment if life threats have been addressed and treated. Use monitoring devices if you have them. The secondary assessment of COPD versus congestive heart patients will give you an example of how your assessments can change from time to time. Patients with COPD are usually older than 50 years of age, often have a history of lung problems, are almost always long-term active or former cigarette smokers, complain of tightness in their chest and constant fatigue. Chest may have a barrel-like appearance, they often use their recessive muscles to breathe, and they exhibit abnormal breath sounds. So this patient, their chronic obstructive pulmonary problem has caused both physical changes in their body to also include their actual body changing, such as that barrel-like look. The person who has the congestive heart failure they don't really have those physical attributes as their emergency or problem is more acute than chronic. And then once we've done all this, we're going to go into the reassessment phase. We're gonna repeat the primary assessment, determine if there have been any changes in the patient's condition, and confirm the adequacy of interventions and patient status. Interventions for respiratory problems may include providing O2 via a non rebreather mask at 15 liters, provided positive pressure ventilation using a BVM, pocket mask, or flow restricted oxygen powered devices. Now, in California, we don't see that last part, but if you're listening to this in any other state but California, you probably use the flow restrictive oxygen powered devices. You should reassess any airway management techniques that you used, as such as an OP airway, NP airway, determine if your patient needs continuous suctioning, and ensure that the patient is in position that the airway is staying open. Provide non-invasive ventilator support with continu- continuous positive airway pressure, This could be in a way of a CPAP, but this once again in California would be a paramedic level skill. But in other states, CPAP is becoming that EMT or that EMT advanced skill. Position the patient in a high Fowler's position or position of choice and assist the patient with any respiratory medications. Communicate all of this relevant information to the staff at the receiving emergency room. Now let's talk about specific emergency care. Management of the respiratory distress patient is as follows. If a patient complains of difficulty breathing, you should administer supplemental oxygen immediately. Take great care in monitoring respirations. The patient may have a meter dose inhaler, an MDI, or smaller volume nebulizer. Consult medical control and make sure the medication is indicated. Ensure that there are no contraindications to the patient's condition most respiratory inhalation medications used relax the muscles that surround the air passages in the lungs leading to dilation of the airways common side effects of inhalers could include increased pulse rate nervousness and muscle tremors the medication from an inhaler is delivered through the respiratory tract to the lung now we're going to talk about the treatment of specific conditions and what this last part of the lecture will include me talking about the actual condition and then your treatment. From here, you'll be able to go back from time to time and re-listen to this lecture to familiarize yourself with that treatment. Upper or lower airway infection administer humidified oxygen if available. Do not attempt to suction the airway or place an OP airway in a patient with suspected epiglottis. Position comfortably. Transport promptly. Acute pulmonary edemia. Provide 100% oxygen. Suction if necessary. Position comfortably. Provide continuous positive airway pressure CPAP, if indicated and allowed by protocol and transport promptly. COPD, assist with prescribed inhaler, watch for side effects due to overuse, position comfortably, and transport promptly. Asthma, hay fever, or anaphylaxis. Asthma patient, be prepared to suction, assist the asthma patient with prescribed inhaler, provide aggressive airway management, oxygen, and prompt transport. Hay fever patient, Hay fever is unlikely to need emergency treatment. Manage the airway and give oxygen according to the level of distress. The anaphylaxis patient. Remove the offending agent. Provide aggressive airway management, oxygen, and prompt transport. Administer epinephrine if allowed by local protocol. Spontaneous pneumothorax. Provide supplemental oxygen. Transport promptly. Monitor carefully. Plural infusion patients. Fluid removal must be done in the hospital. Provide O2 and transport promptly. Obstruction of the airway patient. Partial obstruction. Provide supplemental oxygen and transport. Complete obstruction. Clear the obstruction and administer O2. Transport rapidly to the emergency room. Pulmonary embolus patient. Supplemental oxygen is mandatory. Position comfortably. If hemopathiasis is present, clear the airway, transport promptly. Hyperventilation patient. Complete primary assessment and gather history. Do not have the patient breathe into a paper bag reassure the patient and provide supplemental oxygen transport promptly the environmental industrial exposure patient ensure patients are decontaminated treat with oxygen adjuncts and suction based on any presentations in the airway foreign body aspiration perform the appropriate airway clearing technique specific to age Provide O2 and transport. Tracheostomy dysfunction. Position comfortably. Provide suctioning to clear the obstruction. Once the obstruction is clear, oxygenate the patient. The asthma patient. For children, provide blow-by oxygen by holding the mask in front of the child's face. Use MDIs as you would with older patients. As with any chronic disease, asthma may be life-threatening in the older person. Now this last one is Cystic Fibrosis. This is a genetic disorder that affects the lungs and digestive system. It predisposes children to repeated lung infections. Symptoms range from sinus congestion to wheezing and asthma-like complaints. Suction and oxygenate as needed. Alright ladies and gentlemen, that is it for your respiratory emergency lecture. Other lectures in this block will be the cardiovascular emergency lecture, neurological emergencies, gastrointestinal and urological emergencies, endocrine and hematological emergencies, and immunological emergencies, and probably a few other minor lectures to be added to this particular medical block. Don't forget, you can find these audio-only lectures on YouTube at The EMT Tutor and we're going to start uploading actual video PowerPoint lectures within the next month or two. You can also send us an email to thepublicsafetyguru at gmail.com if you're looking for specific podcast lectures as I have done a few based upon request only. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for all of your support. If you would just like to support this podcast and keep it going for future students, head on over to our Patreon channel at The EMT Tutor and subscribe while you're in your program. But at a very minimum, we ask you to leave feedback on whatever app you're utilizing and share this podcast with other students in your program. All right, everybody. This is it for Chris, the Public Safety Guru, saying happy EMT and good luck, not only with your program, but in preparation to take your National Registry exam.